there, friends. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And this is Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try to bring the best information we can. We do hard work, grueling, manual labor, <laughs> toiling deep in the minds of researchgate.com. Yes. <laughs> Spending a lot of time over the hot keyboard. I mean, the computer gets kind of hot sometimes. Yeah, that's more because of the poor airflow, though. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get started, do you want to talk a little bit about our Oregon trip? We went to Portland. We did. We we went and saw a science museum, so that we was did. nice. That was really cool. We got to, they actually had some living animals there. We wasn't expecting that. Yeah, for sure was not expecting that. Yeah, including I, a sloth. Which was really cool, because yeah. I have not really gotten to see a sloth like that close before. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it's like behind glass you can't just like touch it they were still having to keep people back like to not stress out that sloth too much oh finley for sure was trying to stress out that sloth (laughs) he was doing his best (laughs) but it was cool so anyone in the portland area we can now recommend the oregon museum of science and industry it was really fun yes it was we didn't make our way to the zoo this time but perhaps in a spring or summer trip yeah going in february we kind of felt like that was not the best time we felt like the zoo was not going to be putting its best foot forward in the dead of winter Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we'll go back in the summer yeah so christian this week it's your turn to go first all right what animal do you have for us this week so this week i'm talking about the fishing cat i'm gonna try my hardest with this scientific name prion elurus viverinus great got it this species was submitted by casey martin thank you casey thank you And I'll be getting information from the National Zoo, Animal Diversity Web, Denver Zoo, and a lot of that actually was provided by Casey with links in in their email. Oh, I love an email that includes, like, pointers, you know? (laughs) Like, if you're pitching an animal to our email, if you can include some, like, choice deets in there, oh, it's like a fast pass. (laughs) Yeah. Um they also provided some uh, personal experience with uh, seeing them and talking to them to zoo keepers at their oh, local zoo. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'll touch on that as it, as we get to that. Yay. You, when you said fishing cat, I had a very charming children's storybook image in my head of like an anthropomorphized like cat sitting on a dock mm-hmm, with like mm-hmm. a straw hat and a fishing pole. You know, if you take that image and you combine what you know of real cats, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be too far off. Oh, good. How whimsical. <laughs> it's so frog and toad. <laughs> These are one of the sometimes called lesser cats or small cats. Lesser cats is mean. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a lesser cat. <laughs> These are the trash cats. (laughs) (laughs) So they're talking about size, of course, you know, with the big cats being, you know, lions and tigers and such. The real B grade, the bottom (laughs) shelf cats. (laughs) But they're one of the larger of the small cats. Oh, great. Awesome. (laughs) The biggest small cat. (laughs) So length, body length wise, they are 33 to 45 inches long or 85 to 115 centimeters. And their height is over 16 inches or 40 centimeters at the shoulder. It's a lot of numbers. Yes. Is this bigger than our cat or smaller than our cat? Um, our cat would be a smaller one of these. Okay. Because the males of this one weighs 18 to 31 pounds. 
Okay, so that's a good bit bigger than like a typical house cat. Yeah, or 8 to 14 kilograms. And females weigh 11 to 20 pounds, which is 5 to 9 kilograms, which I think Aki is towards the lower end of that range. Now, he's a big boy. Yeah. He's a big boy. But he is a domestic cat. Yeah. So he's just big for a domestic cat. He is, yeah. <laughs> he's chunky. Yeah. Uh, they have short limbs and stocky body. Aww. Their coat is gray-brown with black spots and stripes. And they have short round ears, and their underside fur is longer than the rest of their fur. I'm thinking like a tabby cat. A little bit, yeah. And they have a pink nose. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They're pretty cute. They can be found currently in marshy areas across South and Southeast Asia. Do you think they'd be mad if they heard us describing them as like adorable and cute? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the same as any other small cat. They belong to the taxonomic family Felidae. Perhaps not surprising. But good to know they're a true cat, not one of these <laughs> times we get thrown. Quote, unquote, a cat super insp- imposter, not real <laughs> trash cat. <laughs> TM. <laughs> no. Uh, so they are related to other cats. Now, in that same genus are the leopard cat, Sunda leopard, and the flat-headed cat. Flat-headed cat seems like they're just making fun a little bit, maybe. <laughs> are they roasting them? flathead they're pretty cute old flathead looking <laughs> if you if you like the the domestic cats that kind of have that flat face look to them a little bit like a persian cat uh kind of like the whole face is like a disc kind of that was a very cursory look at the picture sure. that, that is not the animal i'm digging into today so our first category of effectiveness yes where we talk about physical attributes that help them do the things they need to do i'm giving a full 10 out of 10 whoa yeah for a lesser cat, even. <laughs> Listen, if you threw a lion into this environment, it wouldn't be too good. Oh. Well, I mean, you throw a lion in their own environment. And... <laughs> if you throw a fish into a tree, <laughs> is probably how that saying went. <laughs> uh, so first off, they are semi-aquatic. Mm. This is not the first time you've blindsided me with... <laughs> Something being semi-aquatic right. that doesn't seem like it should be. Wasn't quite as surprising with, I think it was the mole that we were talking about. But... Yeah, the star-nosed mole <laughs> inexplicably know, lives in the water for some reason. As they're known for. <laughs> but no. So you'll remember I mentioned they live in marshy areas across South and Southeast Asia. So they have lots of adaptations that help them live in those environments. Mm. So first up, like many animals or mammals that spend a lot of time in the water, they have a two-layer fur coat. Oh, yes. Like a double double coat? Yeah. So they have a dense, compact layer that uh, keeps water from touching their skin. So that helps with body heat regulation or conservation, I suppose I should say. Yeah, a cotton candy layer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a wetsuit of sorts. And then they have the long guard hairs that has the coloration that we see. It's actually a lot like uh, like penguin fur or otter fur. Yeah, I was or thinking penguin, of otter. I said penguin fur. Penguin feathers. <laughs> Birds famously having fur. It's a lot like um, penguin feathers or otter fur. Yeah, that's also something I was thinking of. So that fur is also a marsh camouflage. Oh, really? With that coloration and pattern. Oh, yeah. yeah it does have that like speckled, muddy mm-hmm. sort of appearance. Yeah. Their claws only partially retract. Unlike, for example, domestic cats, where normally I think their at-rest state is the claws are pretty much fully retracted, right? Mm-hmm. So with these cats, the the neutral position is still slightly uh, exposed claws. So just always a little bit ready to fight. <laughs> so this is good for holding on to prey, particularly prey that they're trying to wrestle with underwater. Mm, they do tend to be slippery down mm-hmm. there. And they have partially webbed toes. 
That is kind of silly sounding. <laughs> I'm imagining a cat, like, you know, sometimes when a cat, like, spreads all their toes out, like, when they're stretching or something. Right. It's like that, but they look like they got webbed frog feet. Yep. I can't even imagine what that would look like without any fur. But... <laughs> <laughs> so they have this fur that helps them be in the water a lot. Um, that fur helps them camouflage in and around that water. Their claws help them hunt in and around that water. And their toes help them swim in that water. So are they, when they're going after, I'm assuming by the name that they're chasing fish, yep. that they're hunting fish, uh-huh. do they fully jump into the water? It seems like a mix of that, or they'll sit at like the, the edge of a body of water and try to scoop them out. Okay. Which I'll talk a little bit more about later. All but. right. Because all of this sounds to me like they're spending a good amount of time actually submersed in mm-hmm. water, mm-hmm. which kind of reminds me of like how slight tangent (laughs) there's a there's a really popular but not true like popular science i'm using i'm going to use theory in air quotes because it's not an actual theory but Mm -hmm. it's a thing a lot of people think that like humans descended from an aquatic or a semi-aquatic species of ape Uh. it's not true it's not a thing at all but a lot of people kind of take like the fact that humans eat fish in so many parts of the world Hmm. To mean like, oh, well, if humans were eating fish, they must have been diving and swimming in the water. I was like, no, we have tools to do that. We just (laughs) do it from up above the water. You don't have to actually get in to catch the fish. You've got a spear. So, yeah, that's just, that's what that reminded me of. But the cats are like, no, we're going in. Uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) You're not running from me down there. Right. Exactly. Next thing I want to talk about are their eyes, which is something you pointed me to when we talked about this. I love cat eyes. There's so much to say about cat eyes. So first up, they have the typical vertical slit people eyes that cats, most cats, domestic cats particularly, are known for. Iconic. Their normal state is that vertical slit, and as they dilate or get bigger, that's when they become pretty round and big, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of eye is usually associated with nocturnal and polyphasic ambush predators. What does polyphasic mean? That is the opposite of monophasic. That, Christian? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't do this to me. Okay, so this it's is It's like in the dictionary when you look up one word and they're like yeah. see the synonym and they both just point to each other and you don't <laughs> it's get an Spider-Man actual Spider-Man meme. Yeah. <laughs> uh so this is talking about sleep cycle. Humans, most humans I suppose are monophasic in that we sleep for one period of time throughout the day. Whereas polyphasic means they're sleeping in multiple periods of time throughout the day like our cat does oh yeah that's true yeah. he takes a like a it's not just like a nap it's like he'll sleep for like hours and hours and hours and then wake up for a little while and mm. then go back to sleep for hours and hours and hours yeah now this paper titled why do animal eyes have pupils of different shapes by banks sprague schmoll parnell and love in a 2015 issue of science advances Uh, So that paper theorizes the shape helps with identification and depth perception of things standing on the ground or water surface. Mm. Now, that is a very rough summary. There Mm -hmm. is a (laughs) lot of stuff in there that is pretty beyond my understanding in terms of how they came to that conclusion. Sure. But that is a rough summary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know how much digging you did into like the dynamics of cat eyes and like how the pupil shape impacts like their depth perception yeah that that was the gist of it is it Mm -hmm. it helps give them the depth perception and the things they need to do right 
there's some interesting things at work there that you can kind of see parallels to in our own vision, Mm -hmm. even though ours are not like built to amplify that effect. Mm -hmm. So one of them is stereopsis, which is where when you have binocular vision, so you have two eyes looking at the same thing at the same time, like when you have like forward facing eyes, Mm -hmm. we can tell how far something away is by how different the image is in each of our eyes. So if you close one of your eyes and then the other eye, if mm. something's really, really close to you, it'll move pretty significantly. Right. Yeah. But if it's far away, it's going to look the same out of either eye. Mm-hmm. So your mm-hmm. brain can tell at any moment how far away something is based on how different it is out of each eye. And then the other one, I'm pretty sure the other way that it judges distance was blur. Yeah, that was in this paper too. Yeah. Um. So there's the the way you mentioned uh, using stereopsis, and then there's the difference of blur based on how they focus the eye, because you can tell when something comes into focus relative to things around it, right? Can, yeah. Can give you an idea of de- of depth perception. And then the other one, the third one, I forget the name for it, but it's what praying mantises do. Oh, parallax. Yes. Yeah. Where you actually have to like move. Yes. Christian, I went back over this with you a few weeks ago. Uh (laughs) Because we were talking about anime. (laughs) And you were giving me a hard time for telling you about that. I did. It was a a refresher course. Ah, Welcome. Thanks. (laughs) So yeah, all those terms on there, it was very complicated. Lots of math, (laughs) lots of angles. I didn't feel confident trying to dig into it. People who use or who are into photography Mm -hmm. have a little bit of an advantage in this, like in understanding this, because if you use like the type of lens that only has one focal length, a subject will only be in focus if it is at the correct focal distance Mm -hmm. away from the lens. It doesn't matter how big the thing is, how little the thing is. If it is a certain distance away, it's going to be in focus. If it's not, it's going to be blurry. Right. So if you've used a camera like that before, then this is maybe a familiar concept. Yeah. But they can do all of this while also having the ability to make their eyes let in more or less light depending on what time of day it is or, you know, so like if you, if you're playing with your cat, Mm -hmm. right. And you see how like when they're locked onto something, their eyes get really, really big. Yeah. It's because they're trying to let in as much light as they can so they can see really, really well. Mm -hmm. But then if it's like really, really bright, then they might narrow their eyes down to slits so that they aren't like blinded. And this particular paper wasn't just talking about cats and vertical Mm -hmm. eye pupils. It was talking about lots of different animals, including snakes, and also, you know, round pupils like our own, and also horizontal rectangular pupils. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. like that's very fun. Like with, I think, sheep or goats, perhaps. Yeah, like a lot of herbivorous mm-hmm. ungulates have eyes like those. Yeah. And they rotate when they put their head down. Have you heard that? No, I didn't. Yeah, when they like, because they spend a lot of time grazing, right? And that horizontal slit, it's supposed to line up with the horizon. Right. It's not going to help them if their head's lowered and the eyes are tilted. So the eyes themselves tilt when the head tilts. Like they're like um like stabilized. It's like a gyroscope. Huh. Like they stay uh, level with the horizon no matter what angle the animal's head is tilted at. That look, sounds fake. Look, No, look <laughs> super closely at like a horse or a goat or a cow when they're grazing. Uh-huh. You'll see that their eyes are still level with the horizon. Huh. It's like, it's it's a real thing. <laughs> I'll look into that. <laughs> I feel like I'm being pranked. <laughs> <laughs> pranked by goats. <laughs> Moving on to Ingenuity, which talks about the smart things they do. I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. That's not bad. Yeah. So, <laughs> like many cats, they communicate through yowls and screeches. Great. Awesome. I'm so glad they do this too. We need more of this in the world. 
Oh, their fishing behavior is very interesting. So they'll sit at the edge of a body of water and scoop out prey with those claws of theirs. But they've also been seen playing with fish in shallow water. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> A cat's a cat. Like, <laughs> cat's gonna cat. <laughs> <laughs> and in captivity, they've been observed dropping their food in water, retrieving it, then eating it. Huh. So it's like a combination of food washing and play. Oh, like doing it on purpose? Yeah. Oh, I wonder why they're doing that. Maybe just knocking stuff off of it, maybe? It was like, I think one specific example was like they would take a bit of meat that they were given and just drop it in the water and then they'll go jump in and retrieve it. Oh, maybe they're just having fun. Yeah. We underestimate animals' capacity for fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They will do something of a fish lure. So they will, (laughs) you can probably imagine this movement exactly, but you know the little tap that cats will do like... On, oh. on, on top of a surface or your hand. Or they bap it yes. like, <laughs> with their little paw. They will do a little tap on the surface of water oh. to simulate an insect hitting the surface <gasps> of the water. To Diabolical. A, yeah, to attract fish to that spot. Oh, my gosh. You know what's so funny? Herons do that, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they'll they'll flick a little like piece of grass or something like that onto the water huh. to bring fish up and then catch them when they come up uh. to the surface. But that's interesting that the cats do that, too. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Uh, they are assumed to be solitary outside of breeding and raising young, like most other cats. Yeah. I think lions are kind of the... The only, outlier. like, social cat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. According to a 2019 post, the Denver Zoo keeps two males, Ronaldo and Misochi, which Aww. are father and son, in the same enclosure, though. And they're, like, cool with each other? Yeah. Oh. There's a whole story behind that. And that's something that Casey uh, included in their email. Oh, nice. was about this story. And Casey mentioned one of the zookeepers told them that the species has a problem with breeding more males than females in captivity. So the female that had Misachi with Ronaldo uh, had to get moved to a different zoo for the mating program. Right. Why is that? Why do they make more males in captivity? I don't know. I actually couldn't find anything about this. So, Hmm. yeah. I mean, we've heard of things like conditions which can influence the outcome of, like, the sex of an offspring right but that's in like in reptiles mm-hmm. the temperature like the, the ambient temperature will determine whether an egg hatches as a male or female but i've never heard of that being the case for mammals so i wonder what's going on i don't know i mean again uh you know denver is very different climate wise from southeast asia that's true so like, I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not sure if it's a specific to them problem or just kind of across the board in captivity yeah i wonder like i, I wonder if it's like an environmental thing right uh in captivity Males have been observed helping females care for young. Oh, good. We love a present dad. Good dad. (laughs) Cat daddy. Yeah. Uh, And the kittens learn fishing tactics from their mother. Oh, that's so (laughs) cute. Like as if the image couldn't get any cuter of like a kitty just right at the water's edge, just playfully tapping on the water (laughs) to get the fish up. Now just plop a couple of adorable little kittens right down in the scene. Yes. It's just like, it got cuter. (laughs) Which is an excellent segue into aesthetics. (laughs) Just how cute or cool something is. Um, I'm going to 10 out of 10 on this one. Especially with yeah. the kittens. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> my, my one note here says, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a cat. That's what it is. I can't improve. Yeah. And then to wrap things up, their conservation status is vulnerable. Their biggest uh, problems include loss of habitat mm. with human encroachment and also poaching. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, is it like a retaliatory thing? or? Um, no, it's more for use of 
their body for products. Although oh. it wasn't clear what parts specifically. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's a fur thing yeah. or, you know, I don't know, maybe there's something in them that's used as an ingredient for something. I don't think it's retaliatory, though. I did come across things saying that they will go after livestock. And in one case, couldn't dig into it, it's mentioned human infants. Really? <laughs> huh. That's a big leap to go from fish to... <laughs> that was one thing from the 1920s. and it was... Oh, well, okay. So... so they loved lying back then. <laughs> <laughs> People loved making stuff up. I mean, <laughs> who knows yeah. what actually happened there. Yeah, I mean, you know, always keep an eye out with the predators, I suppose. Yeah, sleep with one eye open, I guess. Mm-hmm. You never know when a fishing cat is going to come bap your nose <laughs> that's why i keep our our cat on his toes <laughs> is that why you mess with him all day long <laughs> to show him who's boss yeah <laughs> is it a like a stay in line sort of thing yeah keep him, don't let him get too comfortable yeah 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 he's got I'm, the he's got the claws yeah but i got the stomach space and thumbs so. <laughs> <laughs> stomach space are you <laughs> What are you threatening? <laughs> Eat him whole. <laughs> Is that why you bully the cat constantly all day long? It's playing. I it's know. enrichment. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Christian. What a lovely cat. Thank you. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Maximum Fun Network, and then we will get to my animal. I'm Emily Fleming. And I'm Jordan Morris. We're real comedy writers. And real friends. And real cheapskates. We say, why subscribe to expensive streaming services when you can stream tons of insane movies online for free? Yeah, as long as you're fine with 25 randomly inserted, super loud car insurance commercials. On our podcast, Free With Ads, we review streaming movies from the darkest corner of the internet's bargain bin. From the good to the weird to the holy, look at Van Damme's big old butt. Free with ads, a free podcast about free movies that's worth the price of admission. Every Tuesday on MaximumFun.org or your favorite pod spot. Hallelujah! Hello! Welcome, everyone! Step right up. We're going to heal you. We are the healers, Ross and Carrie. Yes, yes. You there. You look like you're upset. Come up here. Yes, you are healed because you've listened to our podcast. Yes. Have you been having trouble with demons? Are you sleeping too much? Too little? Just right? We have the solution. It is to listen to Oh Oh No, no, Ross Ross and and Carrie. A show where we examine unusual claims. We show up so you don't have to. Find us on MaximumFun.org. We won't actually heal you. All right. So, Ellen, what have you got for us this week? This week, I'm talking about the Rock Hyrax. Hmm. Procavia capensis. Have we seen one of these? Yes. Okay. We have. Do you know what I mean when I say Hyrax? Is it conjuring anything? Small ungulate? Oh, you're so close. Like, you got hat, you're 50%. <laughs> Small part, right? Yes. And this, they're a little furry guy. Is it more deer? You know, I could see why you would think that. Okay. You're on the right track. All right. Well, we but got? really what they look like, I'm just going to say this now before I get any further. Kay. Because I think Hyrax gives most people nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like about a house cat sized. It looks like a rodent. Mm-hmm. So it looks kind of like a guinea pig or perhaps a large tailless rat. Mm-hmm. They have very long pointy fangs. Ah. 
sticking out of their mouth and they have funky looking little feet. Their feet do not look like rodent feet, like with the little claws and stuff. They look almost more like otter paws. They have long rounded toes with kind of rubbery soles on the bottom. Huh. Yeah. If you had no idea you never met one before you saw one for the first time, you'd probably think rodent. Okay. The species was submitted by both Genevieve and Tessa Stobley. And I'm getting my information from the African Wildlife Foundation, San Diego Zoo, and some papers that I will mention along the way as they come up. Because they have spoilers in their titles. So I'll say them later. So like I mentioned, this thing, little guy's about the size of a house cat. They are found in rocky cliffs throughout Africa and the Middle East, Hmm. particularly around coastal areas where you'll see a lot of cliffs because they like to make their homes in little caves and like outcroppings on on cliff sides. Mm -hmm. So you'll find them in rocky, very vertical spaces. They belong to the taxonomic family Hyracoidea. I mentioned that at first glance, they look like a rodent. And in fact, the word hyrax comes from an ancient Greek word for a shrew, Hmm. but they are not rodents. They belong to a very special group of mammals called Afrotheria. Oh, we talked about this. We have talked about this. So I'll give people a little history lesson, a little natural history lesson behind this group called Afrotheria. So these days in modern times, Africa is connected to Europe and Asia by the Arabian Peninsula. Hmm. But for a period of about 60 million years, so from 100 million to 40 million years ago, like about, not exactly, but from about 100 million to about 40 million years ago, Africa was completely isolated by water on all sides. So not a lot of flow between Africa and other continents. Mm -hmm. The mammals that started out there were mostly pretty small because they were getting bullied by the dinosaurs. Ah. So this was like non-avian dinosaur times Mm. mammals hadn't really had the chance to branch out yet because they're getting (laughs) rubbed into the ground (laughs) by dinosaurs so once the asteroid came along and did mammals a solid and wiped all those big old dinosaurs out they had a chance to grow and adapt to fill some of those ecological niches left behind and since the continent was isolated they had to end up evolving in very similar ways to the other groups of animals that they were not related to because they had all this evolution going on in other continents that Africa at the time had nothing to do with. Right. So you get a lot of convergent evolution. So a lot of the animals in this Afrotheria group look and act and function a lot like animals that are not related to them. Mm. So for example... The hyrax, which looks a lot like rodents. There's also things like golden moles, which you've talked about, and yes. elephant shrews. All of those Afrotherian, not related to rodents, but they like look and act exactly like rodents. Right. But you also get things like the elephant, which looks and acts and functions like most ungulates, like a rhino or mm. a hippo or something like that. Elephants, not related to any of them. Not even close. But Africa does have ungulates today. It does. So they came over after Africa reattached. Well, Africa attached to, because before it had been attached to South America. But then once Africa attached to the Arabian Peninsula, then you started to get ungulates coming in from like Asia. I see. Yeah. You also get manatees and dugongs, Mm. which look and act a lot like other marine mammals, but 
aren't related to them. So really, you'd look at a hyrax and you'd think it's a rodent, but their closest cousins are elephants. <laughs> Huh. And manatees and dugongs, which is really surprising. Yeah. You asked earlier if we have ever seen a hyrax. We saw them in the Jacksonville Zoo, uh-huh. which brilliantly has the hyrax enclosure right next to the elephant enclosure. <laughs> They're right next to each other. Like you can look at them both at the same time. Right. Which I think is genius. Like, <laughs> and they also have manatees in that zoo. So, like, they do, yeah. you can really hit up the whole span. But so, yeah, hyraxes are the closest cousins to things like elephants and manatees and dugongs, which is kind of weird. Hmm. Those three groups do not seem like they would have anything to do with each other, no. but they are each other's closest living relatives, huh. which is bizarre. So let's get into effectiveness for the hyrax. I'm giving the rock hyrax an eight out of 10. I keep saying rock hyrax because there's other types. There's like bush hyrax and like tree hyrax, like ice hyrax. <laughs> <laughs> Long ago, the four hyraxes lived in harmony. <laughs> I am giving them an 8 out of 10 for effectiveness. First up, one of the most noticeable things when you look at them is their teeth. They got funky little teeth pointing out of their mouth, two little fangs out of either side of their mouth. It's kind of weird. So like where their canine teeth would be? Okay, so here's a weird thing. (laughs) (laughs) It is where you would think their canine teeth would be because in other mammals that have long fangs, like cats and walruses, those are usually the canine teeth. Mm -hmm. But in the hyrax, as with elephants, they are their incisors. Which, if you think about your own mouth, your canines are the pointy ones uh-huh. in the front corners of your mouth. Right. But the teeth in between that have that kind of flat, bumpy shape, mm-hmm. those are your incisors. So if you imagine your two front teeth, uh-huh. your, those are what their fangs are. Oh. That's weird, right? <laughs> huh. Okay. It's so funky that they ended up like that. So if you look at their skull, it's like those two fangs with nothing in between. Oh. Yeah. Same with an elephant. It's very weird. Which makes me wonder, what if vampires had pointy buck teeth? Like, what if like <laughs> human-based vampires, <laughs> like uh, their fangs were their incisors instead of their canine teeth? Oh. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't think. <laughs> they had just the two little fangs pointing out of the front of the mouth. As an Astarian girly. Oh, no. <laughs> Anyway, so I couldn't really find any sort of hard set explanation as to why hyraxes have long tusks, but it could be that it was a trait that they had left over from their common ancestor with elephants and they just, it wasn't hurting them, so they didn't get rid of it. Hmm. Now, in some ungulates like Chinese water deer, they also have long pointy tusks, Mm. kind of exactly the same, like fangs pointing out the sides of the mouth. And in those, those long pointy teeth are used in competition between males, like antlers. And that would make sense for hyraxes because the males have longer and sharper tusks than the females do. So, like, it would make sense that it's mating related. Because if it was a survival thing, the females would have them too. And they have them, but, like, the males are much bigger. So we can kind of infer. (laughs) Yeah. We can draw a conclusion that it's probably related to fighting other males. The next thing I want to talk about for their effectiveness is that they have built-in rock climbing gear. Oh. Because they live on rocky cliffs. So they have those long rounded toes with really thick rubbery soles, like the pads underneath their toes, um, that give them really good grip on rocky cliffs. It reminds me of toe shoes. (laughs) (laughs) You've seen toe shoes, right? Yes. Um, They're basically wearing toe shoes. And I 
looked up toe shoes to see if they're used for rock climbing, and it seems like they're not. And I think maybe we're missing an opportunity. Maybe? I, I mean, know. I'm not super familiar with, like, rock climbing culture, but... And I've never worn a toe shoe, so I don't know yeah. what the actual feel is all about. I also have never worn a toe shoe. It seems to me like it would be a sensory nightmare. <laughs> I feel like I would hate it, but I've never done it. I, You know, I don't want to knock something well, I haven't tried. So there's a bit of a movement going on right now that I've seen about uh, fighting back against how shoes have been designed for a long time. <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about, and I have unfortunately seen the sort of illogical conclusion of that which is people being like well let's just not wear shoes and i'm like now you've <laughs> i think you've skipped a few steps but... i think the probable middle ground is probably just going to be shoes that don't end in a point to yeah. crush your toes into each other oh gosh i hate pointed toed <laughs> shoes but even men's shoes do that to some extent so Ugh. we just need wider shoes i think anyway yeah. back to the high back to the toe shoes <laughs> so yeah you know what toe shoes are was the point of that but in addition to these like flexible rubbery toes the center of their paws which you could kind of think of as like the palm of your hand uh-huh. it's raised it sort of like lifts from in the middle to act as a suction cup oh yeah hmm. and they have this like they sweat out of the bottom of their feet to give them like a moisture seal okay so they can kind of like like <laughs> stick onto the side to help them you know navigate on these rocky cliffs okay I thought it was neat. It's kind of cool. They have special feet. Now, I came across something really weird that I I did not know about them until I was like seriously looking up things about them. They have something called a dorsal gland, which is a gland on their back that secretes a smelly oil that they use to mark their territory. Now, having a smelly gland very normal lots of animals have a smelly gland that makes it an oil that they mark their territory with theirs is in the dead center of their back it's the worst (laughs) it's like the least convenient (laughs) place to have that and that's why i was like i couldn't find any information as to why it would be in the dead center of their back i was like there has to be a better place for that perhaps our desire to have our back scratched (laughs) some basal mammalian trait (laughs) for when we had a gland in the dead center of our back it's it's just wild to me like so deer have a gland near their eyes that does this we talked about the munt jack which had like open pores i don't want to talk about the munt jack actually (laughs) (laughs) but like it's just that seems like the worst place to put it like put it somewhere else you guys i docked a point for that (laughs) that's a dumb place to have that because that means every time you want to mark your territory you gotta like rub your back against something it probably feels good that's true it does feel good i bet so maybe i shouldn't take a point away for that the only other thing i kind of docked them a point for is that they're not actually very good at thermoregulating which is kind of supposed to be the mammal's whole thing. Like, we're supposed to be really good at that. Yeah. They're not. They're oh. not that good at it. Well. So they have to behaviorally manage their own body temperature by doing things like huddling or basking in the sun to, like, get warmer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they have to kind of, you know, make up for that because they're not that good at it with their bodies. Huh. Just seems to be. I saw some sources describe them as, like, primitive mammals. As like a mammal that might more closely resemble our earliest mammal ancestors. This was this has started giving me echidna and platypus vibes <laughs> a little bit. But they are placental mammals, yeah. so they're still like closer to us than they are. Huh. Yeah. Some some interesting little holdout traits. Now that brings us to ingenuity. I'm actually giving the rock hyrax a nine out of ten. Wow. They're pretty clever little guys. 
They are very social. They live in colonies of one adult male and five to 20 females with their young. And they are territorial towards other males, which kind of supports that whole thing about tusks being used for fighting between males. Right. Which is like, sounds very familiar in terms of like how a lot of ungulate herds are set up. There's often like one male with his group of females that he, you know, once his male offspring grow up, he kind of like shoves them out of the herd. They got to go start their own herd. Right. Hyraxes also communicate vocally with a widely varied repertoire of sounds, which I found a couple of interesting little papers, one of which described the sounds the hyraxes use as whale, chuck, snort, squeak, and tweet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which keep an eye out i think that's a future connections category <laughs> i wasn't i wasn't expecting a list of onomatopoeias there so, <laughs> so I, I was interpreting whale and chuck as some sort of like one of them sounds like a whale type, yeah. one of them sounds like yeah I was like, a chuck which whatever that some is guy named chuck i don't know <laughs> Fascinating. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> but for, uh, for connections players, keep an eye out. Ah, I think that's going to be one coming up. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be rock high rack sounds. <laughs> okay. I mentioned that paper because studies have shown that not only do their vocalizations communicate surprisingly complex information like the size and health and social status of the caller. So basically he does his little song And all of the females in the area can hear the male's song and they can kind of decode it. Like, what does this say about this Hyrax who's singing? They can hear how big he is, what kind of health he's in, if he's like a dominant male or if he's kind of like lower on the social status ladder. Um, So they they can learn a lot about him by the song that he's singing, which is like anyone who's ever been to a karaoke night knows, like... You can do that. Like, <laughs> you learn a lot about a guy. <laughs> I'm certainly very concerned about what many must have had as a first impression of me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> but also, just like a human language, they have syntax, which oh. means that they can combine individual noises together to make up a longer, more complex song. Mm -hmm. So just like how in human speech we can combine syllables into a word or we can combine words into a sentence, they can combine different like elements of song into like a more unique sort of like their own personal song. Right. They also have been shown to have regional dialects. Wow. Yeah, where hyraxes in one area may call with a different pattern. So the same sounds in a different order and a different consistent pattern than hyraxes in another area, even just like a few miles away. Mm. So they have little accents and little like little regional variations in their songs, which I thought is interesting. It almost like implies that they have like a culture. Oh, yeah. (laughs) pretty cool and those two papers that i read about that stuff in one of them was called complex call in male rock hyrax procavia capensis a multi-information distributing channel by lee corin and eli geffen in behavioral ecology and sociobiology february of 2008 the other one is called syntactic structure and geographical dialects in the songs of male rock hyraxes by eric kirschenbaum at all in proceedings of the royal society april of 2012 um, so a couple of other little neat behaviors that they have. One of them is that when they eat, they form a circle with each hyrax facing outward mm-hmm. so that they can keep an eye out for predators that may be approaching from any direction. 
you know, one eye on the streets is <laughs> basically at all times. No one's sneaking up on them. Yeah. Yeah. Unless. Unless. <laughs> there's a flight hit opponent. They, that, honestly, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> if Naruto has taught me anything. Here we go again. <laughs> is that this formation has one weak point. <laughs> <laughs> up <laughs> someone instantly appearing in the center of this circle <laughs> christian tell me more about naruto well did this happen in naruto one time uh at least once at least once yeah twice i believe fool me i'll once. have to go back to my archives <laughs> yeah consult your consult your tomes <laughs> Uh, we have to reset the counter. All right, bring it down. Number <laughs> of episodes since Naruto reference. <laughs> Set it back. <laughs> One day we'll get into the double digits. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> now, I say all this cool stuff that they do. They spend about 95% of their time doing absolutely nothing, as was mentioned in multiple zoos describing their activity. They mm-hmm. spend most of their time doing not a single thing, which at first I was like, well, why are you roasting them like this? Like, why are you calling them out for being lazy? And then I thought <laughs> about it, I was like, slay like that sounds awesome (laughs) this sounds great actually sounds like a nice time and the last thing i wanted to say for ingenuity they use something we've talked about before called latrines okay so they use designated areas in their caves as bathrooms Mm -hmm. where they poop and pee so all of the hyraxes in a little colony will all poop and pee in the same part of the cave these waste deposits harden and crystallize over time and can accumulate into middens. So if you've ever seen like a midden where, you know, we'll see them a lot in museums in America oh. where like indigenous communities would have like kind of a waste pile where you would have like shellfish, like discarded yes. like bones and shellfish and stuff yes. that can tell you a lot about the history of the area and like the climate and the ecosystem and stuff. So just like that, these Hyrax latrines form middens, and they can be meters deep. Wow. Lots of poop (laughs) in there. Uh, But it's basically fossilized, so it's hardened over like thousands and thousands of years. So these Hyrax middens are of particular interest to humans for two purposes. One of them is that they provide, like I said, a fossilized record of the regional climate and ecology. This can tell paleontologists a lot about the natural history of that area. Um, as you can imagine, it's like a gold mine in there, right? Either you're going to get like fossilized plant material and, you know, you're, you're going to get a lot of information there. But another way that this is of interest to human purposes is that the hardened material, which is also called hyracium, is a popular ingredient in perfumes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't see hardened fossilized hyrax poop and pee and think... I really want to smell like that. Like, <laughs> apparently this is like, it's used as an ingredient in perfumes to kind of like bring down a scent that might otherwise be too sweet. Okay. Like a scent that is like too overwhelmingly like floral or sweet. It gives it more of like an earthy sort of smell. And there, there is a good amount of conflict between people who want to use the Hyrax bins for research and science 
and people who want to use it for perfume ingredients. Yeah. Because you cannot have both, right? right? You, it, either way, it's going to consume the material. And this is a material that takes tens of thousands of years to form. So it's not exactly renewable. Right. At the very least, it is an animal-derived fragrance that doesn't hurt the animal to get. As long as they're not destroying habitat to get to it, I Yeah. It doesn't, like, actively harm the animal's right. body, right? You feel like castorium, which is taken from beaver glands, and you have to actually harm the animal to get the glands. Like, it's not taken from their body. Right. So I guess there's something to be said for that. Maybe. But, yeah, no one wants to be middenless. <laughs> middenless behavior. <laughs> That's not going to be funny to that many people, but to the people that, that That was for you. Oh, that was Oh, thank you. What a kind <laughs> gift you've given me. <laughs> I stumbled into the stupidest Wikipedia drama while I was learning about this cuz I saw that Rock Hyrax Middens have a Wikipedia page. Like, there's a whole Wikipedia article uh-huh. just about Rock Hyrax Middens. I was like, that's weird. That seems like a really specific thing for there to be a whole article about. Clicked on it. There's a lot there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this seems odd. And then I saw that there's a bunch of notes at the top that are like alerts for the article that say, like, this article contains way too much technical information that would only be of interest to very specific audiences <laughs> and then i clicked into it and i found the entire discussion page between two wikipedia editors who are like arguing <laughs> yikes i found some wikipedia editor drama about this i was like what have i stumbled into i felt i was like am i intruding <laughs> Community sourced, but it's only two people in the community. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it felt like, where one person was trying to be like, basically, like, this is boring. (laughs) Um, So that's Hyracium. Some people like to smell like it, I guess. This brings us to aesthetics for the Rock Hyrax. I'm actually only going to give them a 6 out of 10. I don't think they're that cute. Something doesn't sit right with me. Hmm. Look up a picture of them real quick. You'll see what I mean. It's it's like something's not right. While I'm doing this, did you mention what they eat? plants okay yeah nothing crazy they do eat like succulents and stuff like desert plants to supplement the you know moisture that they would need because they live in deserts so they get a lot of their um, moisture from the plants that they eat this makes more sense than what i was imagining (laughs) because yes our previous local zoo had one but i feel like it was not out usually oh it was it just wasn't doing anything I feel like I could never spot it almost like That's, every time. Yeah, they're just laying on the rocks. I've, I've seen them before. They're, they're literally just laying there yeah. like 95% of the time. Mm. Okay, yeah, this makes sense. But do you see what I mean? I don't... <laughs> like, it just doesn't seem right. They have these really small, like, angry-shaped eyes and, like, a really pointy nose. And then they also have nictitating membranes, which are those clear eyelids that a lot of animals that live in desert environments have. It's to protect their eyes from like sand and stuff. It's right. a very clear membrane that I saw, I was watching videos of them and the, this hyrax was like looking dead at the camera and then blinked with only its nictitating membranes and they were not synced up <laughs> where it was like one at a time, like a few seconds behind the other. And I was like, <laughs> I gotta say, if I had nictitating membranes... <laughs> would you love me if I had nictitating membranes? <laughs> I would use them all the time. I know you would never take them off. It would just be... Yeah, so I don't like it when they do that. They do have feet that look like otter paws, which are pretty cute. So mm-hmm. It's a six for me. Now, to wrap up for the Rock Hyrax, they are of least concern, wow. conservation-wise. They're doing fine. Although, you know, naturally, habitat loss is 
a threat to anything that lives in their area. So that is the Rock Hyrax. Well, thanks, hon. Thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for spending this time with us. I hope you had a good time. Uh, If you liked what you heard today, I would love it if you could leave some nice words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. Like we just got some nice words from Kate Bell on Apple Podcasts, who said, I stumbled upon the show through the Max Fun Network. You can blame John Hodgman. How dare you, John Hodgman? I will blame John Hodgman. What? I will blame John Hodgman. How dare you? (laughs) And I was instantly hooked listening to the show. It's like hanging out with all your weird Twitcher, Herp, Scoop. Twitcher is a birder, a bird person, like ah. a person who bird watches. The friends with all the spotters guides, the animal, fungi, and plant apps, and who travel just in order to spot animals. Much love from Australia. How nice. That is so sweet. I, If any of you want to be that friend with the spotters guides and animal fungi and plant apps i recommend iNaturalist, mm-hmm. which is the app that i use for identifying species that i come across and there is also the merlin bird app which helps you identify bird songs so if you're out and about and you hear some cool bird sounds you can use the merlin bird app to identify those yeah by sound which is i've used it a lot and i think it's really cool so if you want to be that friend that's a good um place for you to start uh, we'd like to thank the Maximum Fun Network for having us on the network with their other amazing shows. If you want to learn more about the network or how you can be a part of supporting our show, head over to MaximumFun.org and check those out. And we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. Thank you, Louis Zong. Thank you. And thank you, listener. We love you. <laughs> Bye. Bye now. <laughs>